Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. Let us summarise our argument so far concerning the exploration of Young's answer to Job. In episode 73, we presented Young's experience with the unconscious from an early age, which disposed him later in life to be so deeply engaged with the book of Job of the Old Testament. In a nutshell, Young experienced, even when a boy, the other side of the psyche, which he was convinced was the dark side of God. He did not want to experience these things. Some of them were more like traumas. He felt that God meant him to have these experiences. They were forced upon him, causing him shame, suffering and intense feelings of alienation. Yet at the same time, it was as if God was revealing something of his nature to Young, and this was the source of grace. Thus, Young was not merely interested in Job. He was identified with him. He was gripped by the story at a deep level, and he wrote the book in a passion of enthusiasm in his 76th year. In the last episode, we started with the first 10 chapters. We explained how there were different voices that Young spoke with. These were different parts of his complex view of the psyche, the world and its history. He allowed himself to flow freely between these modes of expression. This is one of the reasons why the book is so difficult to understand. In one paragraph, Young is the psychoanalyst of Yahweh. In the next, the advocate of Job. In the next, the theological historian then the archetypal psychologist, and so on. The reader may easily be left exhausted and confused. In chapter 1, Young mainly highlights the contradictory nature of Yahweh's personality. In chapter 2, he continues with his theme, but is increasingly switching to another voice, which is more theological, actually more Gnostic, except that it has a potent dose of archetypal psychology and mythology in the mix. Thus Young introduces one of his main themes, that God needs man. He needs human consciousness, which has the advantage over Yahweh. Human consciousness has a moral sense and also has the capacity for self-reflection. Notice how surprising and how Young inverts the normal logic, which would have run man needs God. But no, he says God needs man, and that consciousness is required by the unconscious, and has some advantage over it. Young oscillated between characterising Yahweh as a contradictory nature god, as well as a complexio oppositorum, which is a totality in which the opposites are unified. In chapters 3 to 7, Young switches direction entirely, and speaks chiefly with his Gnostic voice. He now points to what Yahweh lacks, a feminine side or a female consort. Yahweh is just too masculine and moreover quite primitive. He needs the wisdom of Sophia and, informed by the Gnostic literature, Young is convinced that Sophia has been lost and needs to return so as to balance out the unreflective Yahweh. Greater wholeness is required. Young looks to the incarnation of God through Christ, the God-man. This is the development that lies in the future, and which originated 
from the injury done to Job by Yahweh. Once again, notice Young's Gnostic inversion of traditional understanding of these things. Christ, therefore, will be the symbol of justice and love, so missing with Yahweh, and will not be contradictory. Christ will be perfect. Satan will have to leave heaven and be cast to earth. God will have to enter into humanity, and for this, Yahweh will have to clean up his act. In chapter 8, Jung insists that despite all these efforts, evil and negativity are still prevalent on the earth. In chapter 9, Christ does not seem to be quite enough to conquer evil, for after he returns to heaven, the Holy Ghost is to come in order to fortify the Christians and all believers. In chapter 10, Jung insists that the belief that God is all good is simply not credible. The God image is a mixture of opposites. In this episode, I wish to cover chapters 11 to 14. Jung argues that the emergence of Christianity was an attempt to create a totally good God. But Jung focuses on the weakest part of the Christian arguments, that part of Christianity which reveals the dark side of God, and this is in the Book of Revelation. Chapter 11. Jung believed that after the Book of Job, there was a tendency in the Old Testament for Yahweh to become more just and more universal, as if the experience of his encounter with Job had begun to change him towards a more consistent God image. God is still wishing to become man, to integrate with him, but there are disturbances that go in the opposite direction, and the apocalyptical and wrathful God can suddenly appear. Besides the book of Job, Young gives three examples from the books of Ezekiel, Daniel and Enoch in the Old Testament of this complex God entering into mankind with all his darkness. By the way, he does not mention the book of Zechariah, in which there is also an apocalyptical vision. This would have added a little more weight to his thesis, but would not have changed the substance of his argument. So, firstly, the book of Ezekiel was written probably around 590 years before the Common Era, which could have been near the time of the writing of the book of Job. Ezekiel grasps that Yahweh comes closer to man. Yahweh addresses Ezekiel as the Son of Man, by which is implied that he is a prefiguration of Christ, says Young. Ezekiel is possessed by the power of this archetypal manifestation of God in man. But Ezekiel's apocalyptical vision is a symptom of a split between the unconscious and consciousness. The dark side of God is still coming through. It is in the book of Ezekiel that we have the appearance of the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Ezekiel lists them as sword, famine, wild beasts and plague. They are the wrath of God and come to punish mankind. Secondly, Daniel is also a symptom of this disturbance of God wanting to become a man. This book was written around 165 years before the Common Era, in which there is a vision of the four beasts and the Ancient of Days, to whom the Son of Man comes, presumably to rejuvenate the dying God, Young suggests. In Ezekiel and Daniel, the symbols of the Quaternity, the Mandala and the Son of Man, are vague and underdeveloped. But in Enoch, the next example, they are highly developed. Young, with his archetypal voice, interprets these as symbols of the self. 
The next manifestation of God entering into humanity is the Book of Enoch, written around 100 years before the Common Era, in which there is the story of the fall of the angels from heaven so as to marry the daughters of men. Again, this is, as it were, the divine entry into humanity. Yahweh also addresses Enoch as son of man. Enoch is the recipient of divine revelation and also a participant in the divine drama, as if one of the sons of God. Enoch is gripped by the divine drama. God is becoming man, and in turn man is being immersed in the heavenly or the pleromatic process. Pleroma is a term for the Gnostic heaven. It hints at what is becoming a dominant Gnostic voice in this text. There is great emphasis in the book of Enoch on God's righteousness, which to Young signifies that the opposite is probable, that is, that God can be very unrighteous. Despite his apocalyptical narrative, Enoch's vision ends quite positively, since he ascends in his chariot as if to heaven. It seems that Enoch might have given an answer to Job. He has seen the God of righteousness. So therefore, Young suggests, the answer to Job at this stage is justice. God needs to become more just, more consistent and more principled. Young writes, quote, When one considers with what intensity and exclusiveness not only Christ's teachings but the doctrines of the Church in the following centuries down to the present day have emphasised the goodness of the loving Father in heaven, the deliverance from fear, the sumum bonum, etc. One can form some conception of the incompatibility which the figure of Yahweh presents and see how intolerable such a paradox must appear to the religious consciousness. And this problem has probably been so ever since the days of Job. End quotation. In further reflection, Jung says, as God sets out to become man, man is immersed in the pleromatic process. He becomes, as it were, baptised in it and is made to participate in the divine quaternity, which is to say that he is crucified with Christ. Jung now utters another of his astounding statements that can leave the reader breathless, yet determined to fight on with this dense text. He says, quote, the inner instability of Yahweh is the prime cause not only of the creation of the world but also of the pleromatic drama which mankind serves as a tragic chorus. The encounter with the creature changes the creator. Unquote. Young finishes chapter 12 insisting that Christianity was an inevitable development out of this process. He says... Quote, if ever anything had been historically prepared and sustained and supported by the existing system of ideas and the spirit of the times, Christianity would be a classic example. In chapter 12, Jung continues that Jesus then is the attempt to create a God in whom the inconsistencies, contradictions and opposites are ironed out. This is an attempt to make God all good, all just and all loving with no inexplicable darkness and wrath. The sumum bonum, you may remember, is the Latin for all good. From this point of view, Jesus is therefore really the saviour of religion. 
the connection between man and God. This process has already begun, for example, in the Book of Enoch, where Satan, in the shape of a star, is bound and thrown into the abyss until the end of time. However, and this is one of Jung's main points, within Christianity, Satan, that is evil, is still a problem, despite the attempt to create an all-good God. For example, this good God requires a human sacrifice, that of his own son. Well, surely here is the darkness of God again. But Christ's incarnation and coming death do not appear to be enough. The Holy Ghost must come to maintain the forces against the power of evil. Once again, this points to a tremendous change in man's stature with the influx of the divine, raised almost to God-man. Young says that the indwelling of the Holy Ghost is a continuous incarnation of God, so there is abundant light. Nevertheless, the Holy Ghost is an embarrassment ultimately to the Catholic Church, which was threatened by its personal mysticism, individualism and anarchism. But the darkness did not disappear at all, because after Christ, the Holy Ghost and the influx of the divine into man, there was a growing expectation of the Antichrist. Yahweh, God, is in an unreflective tangle again, this time with the Incarnation. Where is the darkness in the Incarnation? Young repeats. Satan is still prince of this world. God cannot deal with him properly. Young suggests now that the spirit of the truth which inhabits man, that is the Holy Ghost, will now create a disturbance in man's unconscious, and this becomes the book of Revelation. And here the darkness well and truly appears. In chapter 13 and 14, there is a focus on the book of Revelation. John, the author of this extraordinary and bizarre last book of the New Testament, is surely, Young believes, also the author of the Gospel of St. John. His reasoning, typical of a psychoanalyst, is not that there is a similarity between them, but that they are opposites. St. John's Gospel is all about love and light, while John of the Apocalypse, as Young calls him, is the exact opposite. His vision is all about darkness and wrath, even in God and Christ. This emergence of darkness is a compensation, surely, for all that goodness. This was probably the case, Young suggests, for John in his personality. As a young man, he may have been personally infused with the light and goodness of Christ. But the underlying compensatory darkness became evident when he was much older. Young lists some of the gruesome and horrifying parts of John's vision. There is the sharp two-edged sword coming out of the mouth of the God figure. This is followed by the letters to the seven churches of Asia, which are full of threats. He or that which sits on the throne is a horror. There follows the opening of the book with seven seals by the Lamb, who is more like a horned demon. From the opening of the first four seals are let loose the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first rides a white horse, carries a bow and is conquest, perhaps invoking pestilence. The second rides a red horse, carries a sword and creates war. The third carries the scales, the balances, rides a black horse and symbolises 
famine. The fourth horse is pale, and upon it rides death. The text reads, quote, They were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword, famine and plague, and by means of the beasts of the earth. Apocalyptical Christianity often interprets this as a prelude to the Last Judgment. At times, figures appearing in the text are confusing, since they may refer to Christ or the Antichrist. But this indicates how the traditional splitting of dark and light, God and Satan, has now broken down, so that the opposites are joined and mixed together. The fifth seal is a cry for vengeance on mankind, for those who dwell on earth, while the sixth seal is a cosmic catastrophe, a great day of wrath. The so-called Lamb is terrifying. Christ has been transformed into a wrathful demon of the first magnitude. Young believes that all of this is not a metaphysical mystery, but compensation for pent-up perfection. The seventh seal and its opening brings more horror and seems to overwhelm even John of the Apocalypse himself. Young comments that he had to eat a little scroll to fortify himself. Here we have a new voice of Young, comic and ironic. Young points out that all of this is totally unchristian. There is no forgiveness, kindness or love, simply the wrath of destruction. Next, there is the appearance of the sun woman with the moon under her feet, and on her head, the crown of stars. She is giving birth and a dragon waits to consume the child. Young, now speaking with his Gnostic voice, insists that she is the feminine anthropos, the counterpart of the masculine principle. Young is very impressed by this female symbol, with, quote, the stars above, the moon below, in the middle of the sun, the rising Horus, and the setting Osiris, and the maternal night all round. This symbolism reveals the whole mystery of the woman. She contains in her darkness the sun of the masculine consciousness, which rises as a child out of the nocturnal sea of the unconscious, and as an old man sinks into it again. She holds the dark to the light, and symbolises the high union of opposites, and reconciles nature with spirit. This is the first sign of approval Jung has given of anything in the book of Revelation, and here one can see that this arises because it is the Gnostic Young that is recognising the symbol of the lost Sophia. Young continues, now with a more alchemical tone, that the son who has been born is therefore a complex opposite, a uniting symbol, a totality of life. Christ is a symbol, psychologically speaking, whereby the totality of the psyche, of conscious and the unconscious, ascends over the ego which represents only a small portion of consciousness. Young, speaking now with the voice of archetypal psychology, reveals in a footnote that, as a totality, the self is by definition always a complex of opposites, and the more consciousness insists on its own luminous nature and lays claim to authority, the more the self, in the deep psyche, in the unconscious, will appear as something dark and menacing. He insists that it is the excessive tendency towards the light and the good of Christianity that has produced the darkness. 
chapter 14, our last chapter for today. One point of refuge is now mentioned in John's vision. This is on the Mount of Zion, where 144,000 of the elect gather around the Lamb. These are male virgins, undefiled, who say no to life on earth. Jung regards this ultra-Christian position with some disgust, since in reality he believes it is a complete denial of the union of male and female and of all pleasure. Next an angel trumpets an everlasting gospel with the words, Fear God. The Son of Man and an angel appear with sickles, and there is great slaughter of humans. Then arrive the seven angels with the vials of wrath, and pour them on the earth, and a great destruction follows, especially of the whore of Babylon, which for young meant the destruction of all natural pleasure. No doubt his Gnostic instincts see this as defamation of the lost Sophia, who is characterised as a whore by the Christians. Young may have in mind a famous Gnostic myth whereby the Saviour comes and rescues the Sophia who has been cast into the position of a whore in a brothel. After so much destruction of life, the text says, Rejoice! Christ rides the white horse, Satan is locked in a bottomless pit for 1,000 years, but then will be loosed and then finally thrown into the lake forever, though not completely destroyed. Young is keen to emphasise that the problem of evil cannot be banished. The sacred marriage of the Lamb and the Bride can now take place. There is no night, nor anything unclean, and we see the waters of life and the tree of life. This marriage is usually interpreted as that between Christ and his church, a uniting symbol with images of perfection and wholeness. But Young points out that this is at the expense of propagation and sexuality. There is something very unhealthy about it, he suspects. And this is a characteristic Gnostic complaint concerning Christianity. In our next episode, we will finish the account of the text of the answer to Job. Young, in the remaining six chapters, passes on to the modern world, the dangers of a contemporary apocalypse, resulting from the Luciferian instruments of science, the terrible darkness or shadow that lies in the psyche of mankind, with no balanced and guiding God image, the importance of the restoration of the feminine archetype, and much more. I hope you can join me.